Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And they're a lot less interesting than the women because inevitably they are usually women that they kill, but whose names we often forget. Very so true. we know Ted Bundy's name, we know Jeffrey Dahmer's name, but can we make a list of all of their victims? I can't. I'm sure you can't. No. I think most of us can't. And that's on us. That's a failing on us. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs, and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. The true crime genre is one of the world's most popular in books, podcasts, TV shows and films. But what is it that makes us so drawn to violence and all things criminal? Today, I'm talking to author and columnist Sarah Weinman, whose latest book, Evidence of Things Seen, an anthology of true crime essays and works, is published this summer. The award-winning writer, who has uncovered the real-life Lolita and who considers true crime to be an all-encompassing genre of how society behaves, says our obsession with crime goes back to the Salem witch trials and will continue well into the future in different formats. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. We're going to talk about true crime and I suppose in a way we're going to be, well, I'm going to be a bit critical here because, you know, we're going to do this on a podcast, which is a commercial entity about sort of crime. Now, I don't actually call it true crime because I'll just tell you my experience and and maybe that'll get us going on this discussion. But um, last year uh, we went over to a thing called CrimeCon, which I think is an American sort of a, a conference if you'd call it that, that made its way to London for the first time. And we travelled over to attend it. And, you know, it was true crime. I didn't know what to expect. But what I discovered was that uh, sort of Crime World being my podcast isn't true crime, I don't think. So the way I looked at it, it's true crime seems to be this very um, close to entertainment. But it seems to me to be this genre which is very focused on uh, cold case murders and mysteries and really sort of stories that are quite random and that aren't mainstream news, really. Is that how you, you'd see true crime or 
have you a wider sort of a, a vision of it? I've always had a wider vision of what true crime is. I think that what you have described is what is generally thought of as a more traditional approach to true crime. And certainly this goes back many, many centuries. Certainly, if we look at stories from 100 years ago, what classic true crime cases might have been were the Leopold and Loeb story in Chicago or the Lindbergh baby kidnapping Mm -hmm. and on through gangsters and Bonnie and Clyde and um, certainly more recently, I'm jumping ahead a few decades, but various serial killers like Ted Bundy and Jeffrey Dahmer, the O.J. Simpson case. It's cases that capture the fancy, but to my mind, true crime as a genre is actually much more expansive and much more wide ranging Mm. and much more about dealing with systemic issues about wrongful convictions, about societal blight, about being unhoused, being undocumented. And it's all about how society interacts and with human behavior. And so what people are interested in, of course, because this is just human nature, is to be interested in the most extreme behavior that people undertake and what it would take for any of us to cross that gossamer thin line between up being a criminal and doing criminal things. So that's why in my own work, I try to look at it from all vantage points as an author and also as an editor. As an author, I try to sort of build up certain questions related to people who are victims of crime, but also who are sort of caught up in different kinds of other questions. Like in The Real Lolita, I wasn't just writing about the kidnapping of an 11-year-old girl. I was also looking at how that kidnapping related to this famous and controversial novel Lolita and what responsibility the author, Vladimir Nabokov, had to incorporating real-life trauma and pain into a fictional story. In my last book, Scoundrel, which came out in the U.S. and Canada last year, it was about someone who had con- who was convicted of murdering a teenage girl, but it was also about why we choose to believe in the purported innocence of some people over others. And with this new anthology, Evidence of Things Seen, I'm just trying to ask even bigger questions of what are we even calling true crime? Why don't we think of it in the most in the broadest possible way? Because then we can ask really t- even tougher questions and think of it much more thoughtfully and systemically instead of so much of what the genre stands to be, mm-hmm. which is, as you point out, entertainment. Yeah, I mean, that's the th- like what you talk about there is absolutely what what I would see the 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 ideal being absolutely dipping into you know, victims where they are in society, why they are victims, same thing, looking at perpetrators of crime. Why did they become that? You know, looking at all of society and sort of maybe from a criminological point of view. But the way I see it sometimes, unfortunately, it's these stories that get the bigger bang, you know, that seem to have this sort of X factor or whatever it is, are stories that are told in a way that that, they, d- they don't delve into those elements of of it that maybe sometimes in, in journalism we do. You know, I often find here in Ireland, there's stories that 
have been made into podcasts, have been made into probably numerous podcasts, have been made into numerous documentaries. Myself and other journalist friends would still get calls all the time about a, a murder case in particular that's 20 years old at this stage. And documentary... Is this the West Cork case? Well, well actually, there's another case. You know, there's actually another case. <laughs> I was actually talking about the murder of Rachel O'Reilly. Um, for okay. some reason... It has got a huge, absolutely enormous amount of effort put into making documentaries on it and stuff. And there'd be other stories that a lot of us would see as being really important and they don't see the light of day. They don't seem to have um, whatever that attraction is that the public want. I mean, the West Cork story that you mentioned, you have a beautiful, blonde, very wealthy Parisian uh, whose husband is famous, who comes to Ireland and her murder was horrific. Uh, the fact that it hasn't yes. been solved. You know, I, I understand the fascination with that mystery of trying to piece together the last moments and what may or may not have happened. But, you know, the, the chances of that sort of a crime happening are so slim compared to other crime, in particular, young men going into gangs, maybe, and getting shot dead at the age of 21 because they owe a drug debt. To me, that's yes. the real thing that we need to, as a society, be addressing looking at the reasons for that. And yes, it doesn't seem to be entertaining enough. Exactly. And it is unfortunate that the public continues to gravitate towards what I think of as, quote, more glamorous mm -hmm. stories that involve beautiful, young, white, dead women. I mean, this is a trope mm -hmm. that has been written about for many years. In a way, you could almost trace the... It existed long before then, but I think the evolution of it really accelerated when the television show Twin Peaks started to air and you had the whole craze about who killed Laura Palmer. And even though she was a fictional character played by uh, Cheryl Lee, in a way, she was an avatar for all sorts of coverage that had happened before and after. Anytime there's some, sign of, some sort of sensational element, you add in an unsolved crime mm -hmm. and people's interests just get piqued in a way that feels like they're turning a real life story into a soap opera because people continue to be attracted to melodrama. People continue to be attracted to the unknown. People continue to be attracted to what they most fear. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit of a side point, but I think it's worth pointing out that true crime as a genre is especially popular among women. And it, it's especially with certain podcasts where they are essentially chat shows by women for women creating community of other women who feel less alone, that they can listen to these shows or watch these programs or read certain books and try to essentially figure out in their own mind how not to be the person who gets murdered. I mean, there's a tagline for the mm -hmm. podcast, My Favorite Murder, where they say, stay sexy, don't get murdered, right. <laughs> which is supposed to be a joke. Mm. But it's also emblematic of the sense of fear that gets instilled in women, rightly or wrongly, about crimes that really are statistically almost insignificant. I mean, the likelihood of being killed by a stranger, a la a serial killer, is so low mm. that we really shouldn't be paying it mind. You're much more likely as a woman to be abused and killed by someone you know, someone you live with, someone you profess to love, an intimate partner. Or if you're a person of color, then most likely it will be because of poverty and especially in America guns that lead to 
significant am amounts of, of crime and murder. And yet, because they, they don't have this glamorous element, if anything, they're so everyday. They're, it's like true crime has become an escapist fantasy. And it's much more important to sort of pull that back and go, well, what when we when we deal with escapist fantasy, what are we actually avoiding discussing? And those are the topics that I think it's important to kind of move more towards. And that's why, in a way, I sort of think of true crime in its current ongoing moment mm. as two distinct streams that sometimes are in conversation with one another. One stream are the investigative journalism shows like yours or in America, um, in the dark, but mm -hmm. American public media, although now I think it's part of uh, the New Yorker where one of the seasons actually led to the Supreme court overturning the conviction of someone who was innocent and also had been tried six times for this crime that he didn't commit. Yes. There are shows even more and more that deal with systemic abuses, with how parole violations are mismanaged and abused, how Texas sheriffs are going about their business in a way that's leading to wrongful conviction. So those are the types of investigative podcasts or investigative shows mm -hmm that I myself am much more interested in. However, we can't ignore the fact that true crime is a space for community. And that's the other stream that I'm talking about. So it's these chat casts, it's these conventions, it's Facebook groups, it's Reddit groups, it's Discord servers, it's places where people can gather and talk about the crimes that they're most interested in and feel like they're participating and feel like they're amateur sleuths and feel like they're personally invested in seeing some kind of outcome. Mm -hmm. And I think what my hope is as a journalist who really believes in journalism and the highest possible standard is that even those who just want to sit around and talk about true crime, that they also think more seriously about what it is to be a victim of crime, what it is to be affected by crime for the rest of their lives, what it is to investigate crime if you're law enforcement, if you're a journalist, and what the success and failure rates actually are versus what popular culture thinks they are. Mm -hmm. And so if we create this much larger landscape for thinking about what true crime is, I think we create a much healthier space in the long run. And in a way, maybe journalists like ourselves have to just try a little bit harder as well, because, you know, the likes of a crime against, you know, a middle class, educated white individual. You have within that crime educated, empowered people to come and speak out about it. So it's kind of easy to go find them. If you take yourself into, you know, sort of gangs and you try and find within those gangs somebody to talk to, somebody who A, isn't too scared and B, has the language skills to actually articulate their own story, what they've been through. That is harder to do, isn't it? And it takes longer for Absolutely. us. Absolutely. It takes longer for us to do it. But you can actually create the same intimacy. People can hear a story from somebody like that with the intimacy of audio. Um, if And they can feel as empathetic and sympathetic to those people once they hear their voice. You know what I mean? So it's probably Absolutely. You know, on us as well to take the harder road into stories. I think as a, as journalists, it's incumbent to respect 
what our sources or potential sources are going through. It took me a while to arrive at this, but what I now try to do when I'm about to speak with someone, especially on incredibly difficult topics like murder and sexual assault, that I have preliminary conversations that are not necessarily on the record, just to kind of take their temperature, to tell them who I am and what I'm doing, why I'm doing this. And I have a kind of a running joke with other journalist friends that I tell people, I'm a journalist, you should never talk to a journalist, (laughs) because we know what the pitfalls are. We know how words can be taken out of context. We know how in order to look for the story that we're essentially asking people to re-traumatize themselves over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And is that really helping anyone? Are we really learning anything beyond just, okay, we can re-traumatize someone and get a story out of it. So instead, I think journalism rewards impatience. And I think that taking steps back to be more patient and to be guided in a way emotionally by where sources are at. I was, I'm thinking of a recent book published in the U S called we were once a family Mm -hmm. by Roxana Asgarian. And she's a reporter in Texas. She was writing about child welfare and child removal and this horrific tragedy that happened in Oregon where this white lesbian couple had adopted six black children And there was clearly physical and emotional and mental abuse happening in that home. Anyway, they drove a car off off a cliff and all of them died or some of their bodies were never recovered. So Ascarian went back and tried to find the birth families. Mm. And she describes how in some instances she found she found one birth sibling and it took a full year for him to commit to telling his story. And she just kind of had to stay with him Mm. and check in with him and see if he was ready. And sometimes he'd be ready. And then at the last minute would back out. And I thought it was so powerful the way that she described the effort and the patience that she took in finally letting him be Mm -hmm. ready at his own pace and not hers. And it does require a lot more effort. It does require a lot more commitment. It does require a lot more patience but the rewards are infinitesimally greater than rushing through it or, you know, being necessarily, sometimes you just can't be bound by a newspaper or magazine deadline that you have to go at the pace of how everyone else is doing because it's their tragedy. It's their life as reporters, as journalists, we do the interviews and then we go back to our lives and go on to probably go on to the next story at whatever time frame we, we are at. Victims of crime have to live with this for the rest of their lives Mm. and their, their lives are changed forever in ways that they don't always even know. So I feel so responsible and so morally culpable. And it's so important for me to just have that in the back of my mind as I'm speaking to potential sources about the worst thing that ever happened to them. And I'm sure over your career as well, like myself, you've met people who've actually been traumatized by journalists and by their handling. Oh, yes. (laughs) And and that's horrific when you do and you're trying to sort of explain to them that, you know, sure, there's good and bad in every job, isn't there? Um, What you're talking about, again, is absolutely a wonderful existence if you can have that in journalism. And unfortunately, the way the media industries are going, both in the US and over here, um, there's cost cutting everywhere. There's journalists losing their jobs. The regional newspapers are in trouble. 
um, the regional media across the board. Uh, and there will be a few, probably a little bit like publishing, there'll be a few giants left who will have, you know, sopped up everything. Um, and that's not really an ideal for society because, you know, when they don't have choice, um, as much choice in their media. But, um, you know, it would be fabulous if editors and if if media would invest in that kind of journalism more. Unfortunately, you know, not everybody can do that kind of journalism, I suppose. And I've always been lucky that I've always been encouraged on long term projects that I've done and uh, all the rest of it. But like, you know, at the same time, there is this massive big giant of the Internet that has to be fed, the websites, the, the streaming services, which everybody wants crime. Everybody loves crime. They want it in podcasts. They want it in books. They want it in, in Netflix and everywhere else. And there is this an awful lot of this stuff filtering in that is just sensationalist. It's entertaining. And uh, those kind of other stories that we believe have value just get left behind sometimes because I'd say there's I'd say there's a lot of people out there in prisons in the world, across the world, who are innocent people and whose cases will never be championed by journalists because there just isn't enough of us and we don't have enough time. Um, but there'll always be uh, a media entity that will take something that is bound to get the figures and is bound to get the viewers and, you know, that's going to hit those objectives. Um, and unfortunately, it seems more and more that those are uh, these sort of flimsily put together pieces of journalism, which are just retelling a story with no depth, no new uh, discoveries uh, and no real reason. Right. I mean, this is a common phenomenon where certain cases capture national or international attention. And it almost seems as if it almost seems as if everyone is just regurgitating the same facts over and over and over again in a vacuum of new information. There's one case that I'm both fascinated by, but I'm pretty sure I will never write about it, which mm. is the quadruple murder that happened in Moscow, Idaho. And the suspect that was arrested, he was pursuing a PhD in criminal justice, so everyone is super fascinated by him. But because there's a gag order that was instilled by the judge, and because it, it's an ongoing legal investigation, so sources are, are Sarah, not allowed to this talk. this was the story of the guy that was in the college, was it? Yes, yes, that's yeah, the one. Ju just remind us very, very briefly about that, what happened there. Sure. So in 2022, I'm trying to remember the exact date, uh, four students in Moscow, Idaho, a small town near the border of the state of Washington, were murdered in their home. And it was a very brutal crime. And it was unsolved for six, for several weeks. And it became an internet sensation as all the usual things that have been happening in modern day true crime, where people get on message boards and social media, TikTok too, and come up with their own theories and try to figure out who did it and parse it. And then it turned out, and they blamed law enforcement for not doing anything, but actually they were figuring out a viable suspect whom they arrested in Pennsylvania. And the suspect uh, was extradited back to Idaho, where he awaits, uh, eventually awaits trial, mm -hmm. though it won't happen for a while. So in the meantime, there's been so much coverage there, uh, and I know of at least 
three books under contract about this case, even though it has not gone to trial, even though there's so much information that we don't know. Right. And speaking for me, I now have no desire to write about this case because, you know, part of it is a, 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 comp- a healthy sense of competition that once so many people enter a space, I want nothing to do with it because I know I'm not going to offer anything significant or new. I'm not going to outreport anybody on a, on a famous case. Mm. I'm much more interested in finding cases that are either significantly under underreported or have never been reported on at all because they'll answer many of the same questions that a more famous case might have. Mm-hmm. And by the same token, seeing certain cases get what I think of as covered to death, which is perhaps a terrible <laughs> metaphor to use, but still, it's like, do we really need another documentary or scripted series about Ted Bundy or Jeffrey Dahmer? We do not. What we do need to understand is serial murders are not archetypes. They're not boogeymen. They're not like Frankenstein's monster. They're not actually a horror archetype. They're not a piece of melodrama. They're just usually guys who have antisocial personalities, who have traumatized childhoods that they have transmogrified in the worst possible way. And they're a lot less interesting than the women because inevitably they are usually women that they kill, but whose names we often forget. So we know Ted Bundy's name. We know Jeffrey Dahmer's name. But can we make a list of all of their victims? I can't. I'm sure you can't. No. I think most of us can't. And that's on us. That's a failing on us. Mm. I mean, there is another whole element, really, of, you know, true crime genre and where are the victims in it a lot of the time, because it is the perpetrators who become the known names and faces. And we find out everything about them. We find out right back to their childhoods, you know, their date of birth, how they what they like to eat. Um, and yes, absolutely. The victims can often be be left behind in 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 these sort of commercial stories, really. Um, tell me about your book, Evidence of Things Seen, which is going to be out in July and is available, is going to be available on Audible um, as well. This book is, you, you've edited it as such, it's a collection of stories from crime writers, which are yes. kind of, they're, they're probably the more intriguing story that you wouldn't necessarily see uh, on five different documentaries across Netflix. So... Evidence of Things Seen grew out of an earlier anthology that I edited called Unspeakable Acts that came out in the summer of 2020. And the impetus for that anthology was a pretty simple one. It was who is writing the best journalism about crime and what kind of argument can I make about what true crime is, especially in the years since the first season of Serial that um, was about the Adnan Syed case and the murder of Heyman Lee mm. became such a international phenomenon that it essentially jump-started true crime as we knew it. And this phenomenon, which I always think is going to end at, at, at any given moment, but no, it's true crime is very durable and I think is a perennial favorite among readers and listeners and viewers. So I wanted to know who is doing the best journalism and thinking and essay writing in the aftermath of this phenomenon. So I collected a whole bunch of different pieces 
Um, and I grouped them in three sections. One were, were what I call traditional narrative features. One of them was an oral history of a mass shooting in Texas. One was about a Munchausen by proxy case that became the basis for the Hulu television show, The Act. One was about a, a murder of by a young woman of her parents in Toronto. And the, so, the, so those are what I thought of as like traditional narrative features, but they were actually doing a little bit more. Then I had essays about true crime, sort of interrogating the genre. And then this final section was me asking, well, how do we look at true crime from a much more systemic standpoint? So those pieces included one about gun violence and what bullets actually do to bodies. One was a history of the American Customs and Border Patrol, because I felt like the way things were going on in the border actually counts as true crime. One was about how a community gathered together to rally support after a black trans teen went missing and we still don't fully know what happened. So that collection did very well. Mm. And my publisher made noises about wanting another one. And I said, I would only do it if I could figure out a different kind of argument. And then essentially with the pandemic, with the protests in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd by police, I felt like I had another argument about what are we reckoning with? And it changed over the intervening years that I collect, put together this anthology because, of course, it's not 2020. It's not even 2021. And here I am talking to you in June of 2023. We're having a number of different backlashes. We're having we're also having a number of significant changes. But I thought that this collection could reflect the times that we were living in the journalism that was being conducted, the questions that were being asked, and maybe a, another way forward for where the genre could go. And what is it that, uh, you know, attracts you to these pieces of writing? Is it uh, their depth? Is Are they a little bit left of set? You know, to be, they're, not, they're not just the kind of the ordinary things. There's something obviously in each of them that you feel is very valid for... Your collections, essentially, because it's a collection of 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 writings that you're presenting to us that you feel have a, a greater value than the ordinary. I mean, first and foremost, I'm attracted to excellent writing, whether it's about crime or or anything, but especially about crime, where a lot of journalism, understandably, for reasons that we've discussed, of you're on deadline, it's on speed. It, it, there's a tremendous the speed with which you have to produce these pieces mm. does not necessarily allow for luxurious languid writing. But if you do ha are given the space, especially say in magazines or even in long in, in with some internet websites or other places yeah, to really just work on communicating what you want to say and how you want to say it, that is always appealing to me as a reader and as an author and as an editor. So that's first and foremost. Another is what is the substance of the pieces that I'm collected? What are they trying to say? I mean, I'm thinking of a piece by the journalist Wesley Lowry, who has a book of his own American white lash coming out at, on June 28th. And he wrote for GQ, a piece about a black man who was lynched in the eighties which we don't think of as happening. And yet, in a way, lynching never stopped. It just changed form. Mm. You could think of all police shootings as lynchings in a manner in a manner of fashion. Or 
in, in there's another piece by the podcaster and journalist Michael Hobbs on the history of white collar crime. And I really wanted to reprint that because I felt like it really got at some of the ways in which society, but especially American society, has gone spectacularly wrong in the last few years, which is that the justice system is terrible at convicting affluent criminals of financial misdeeds. And when they keep getting away with their crimes, what does it mean for society as a whole? How do, does it foment distrust? Does it create instability? Things like that. Mm. And I also wanted to publish pieces again that looked at more systemic things. Um, I have one on restorative justice by the writer and editor Amelia Schonbeck. Um, I included one about the murder of a Black Lives Matter activist who was a really powerful young woman in her own right, Toyin uh, Salau. And I thought that the author of that piece, uh, Sam Schuyler, really did a great job in illuminating who she was as a person, not just as the murder victim. But I also look at, include pieces about, again, about the genre itself. There was an essay that Amanda Knox, the famously famous exoneree, wrote about what it was like to see her own self co-opted in movies, books, and other media, and something that she'll have to struggle with for the rest of her life. It doesn't take away from the fact that her one-time roommate, Meredith Kircher, was murdered, and she's often forgotten in the conversation. But great harm was done to Amanda, too. I mean, she served time for a crime she didn't commit, and that will stay with her for the rest of her life. So what does that... It, so so it, again, I was trying to put together a collection that made the larger argument of what is true crime reckoning with now, and where, what roadmap can we create that can lead to more thoughtful in investigation and journalism and storytelling. You're a voracious reader yourself. I heard you saying that you first read Lolita and um, we come on to the, the book, your own book, The Real Lolita, that you wrote some years ago. You first read it when you were only a teenager. Um, yes. <laughs> I was certainly well in my late 20s when I got to that. I was reading Judy Bloom, I think. Um, but so... You'd read that and not only did you read it then, but you were disturbed by it in a way that was very mature, I would have thought. It was the first time when I read Lolita, I was 16, where I understood what what literature could do, that it could make me feel things that I didn't really want to feel, but that felt almost bigger than myself, that I, I knew that I wasn't fully grasping what Nabokov was doing, but I also was carried away by the pace and I, I felt compelled to keep reading even as I was disturbed and in many places appalled by it. Mm. But I didn't revisit Lolita fully until I was working on the magazine piece that eventually became the basis for my book. And when I revisited it, it was very interesting because I still had that sense of, I can't put this novel down. I'm still sort of ensorcelled by Humbert Humbert's voice. But it was also impossible to look away from the incredible harm and abuse that he was inflicting upon Dolores Hayes. And that even though his voice overwhelms the book by design, Nabokov is incredibly clever at cluing the reader in on Dolores and her plight 
and the fact that her voice is only intermittent and that there's a much deeper tragedy happening. Mm. And so even though he himself never wanted to talk about where he his his sympathies lay, to me, Lolita is a very moral book. To me, it is showing an outrageous act, a continued act of sexual abuse happening again and again in the ways in which the reader is complicit, society is complicit, the author is complicit. Mm. And that those were so many different elements of what I wanted to explore in The Real Lolita. So that even though Sally Horner's story, and she was the 11-year-old girl who was kidnapped and rescued and ultimately died quite young and barely had a chance to live. And the fact that her story is mentioned overtly in Lolita by the narrator, Humbert Humbert, at a time when he's the mask is kind of slipping and he's sort of seeing himself for who he actually is, but then the mask will come back in place. It's a very powerful moment. And it made me want to investigate Sally's own life and who she was and who what she meant to surviving family members and friends and to get a sense of what America was like at the time of her kidnapping and why Nabokov himself was attracted to chronicling this moment too. And I think uh, when you came across the name Sarah Horner and started to investigate who she was, and of course it was 1948 when she was abducted and taken for more than a year, I think, across the States and uh, by this horrific rapist who held her. And uh, yes. there was all sorts of societal things going on at that point, how she was treated afterwards when she did come back. And it was seen as her sin that she was no longer a virgin and yes. all those sort of things were going on. But uh, while you respect Nabokov and how, you know, this book details sexual abuse in a very real way where we've all turned our head from it, you also are critical of the fact that he didn't, that he used this other story of a real life uh, victim and maybe didn't credit it or, or, or turned it into a, a, a book of fiction without sort of, I mean, that happens at times, of course, with authors. They get accused of taking a real life criminal event and using it as the basis of a fictional story um, and not sort of coming clean about that. Yeah, I mean, it's I think it's a it's a difficult endeavor and it should be by nature difficult. Like what I've always said is that Nabokov transforming real life trauma and pain into art. I don't necessarily think he shouldn't have done that, but I think that he, what I would like is just to hold him more accountable and hold other novelists accountable to just thinking more, to asking the hardest possible questions, to figuring out. It's not that I'm, I necessarily think that novelists should reach out to mm. people who've been traumatized and take their temperature and the like, but there are, are ways in which these stories can be better integrated into fiction and perhaps changed where the details are changed a little bit more overtly. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm a crime writer. I review crime novels all the time. I have friends who write crime novels. I've written crime short stories. So I'm not immune to these impulses myself. I mean, I've even written stories where I read about a, a case 
And then in my brain, I'm thinking, well, what if I change this element and this element and that element and that element? And then I have a completely different story that bears very little resemblance to the original idea, but it's still the original idea. And that's because as fiction writers, they, we are getting ideas from everywhere. Mm -hmm. That's important. But what my concern is, and it's less to do with Nabokov, although I think it was important to at least interrogate what he was doing and how he was doing it. But ultimately where I land on is Lolita is still one of the greatest novels of 20th of the 20th century. And so if anything, if you're going to transform somebody's real life trauma and pain into a novel, it has to be at the highest possible standard. And for me, Lolita is that highest possible standard. I mean, what he was doing stylistically, narratively is just astonishing and almost impossible to replicate. And that's why that novel has been so profoundly misunderstood since it was first published in 1955 and then published sort of more readily and commercially in 1958. So ultimately what I object to is less about Nabokov and more about fictional depictions that actually use the real names of people as characters, or as I wrote about in the New York, in a op-ed for the New York times where you're doing a fictional film based on real life and you get major facts wrong. And even to the point of, as it happened with this film about the Boston Strangler, where I had to end up doing basic journalism mm. because a supporting player in it, they said he was alive and actually he had died <laughs> and no one had bothered to check. Right. And it was just like, I'm right. I'm, I'm watching the scene between this prisoner named George Nassar, who at one time was a suspect in the Boston Strangler case. And he had helped convince the man deemed to be responsible for the Strangler case, Albert DeSalvo, to start confessing and hooked him up with his lawyer, F. Lee Bailey. So there's a scene in the film in which the intrepid journalist played by Kira Knightley interviews Nassar. That didn't happen. I, I have less issue with that because I do understand that, you know, it's like, how do we... Narrative license is okay up to a point, but I think if you're going to take narrative license, you should at least be grounded in basic facts. And basic facts include checking whether somebody is alive or dead. Mm -hmm. I mean, that went through a lot of eye, eyes before it made it. Right. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of people missed that. Um, there was a, a card at the end that said, George Nasser is still in prison. I thought, is he? Yeah. And I started making some phone calls and emails and got to a point where somebody at the Massachusetts Correctional Institution said, oh, no, he's no longer with us. Right. But I knew that I had sort of reached the end of my own abilities to report it out and with time being what it was. So I wrote to one of the obituary editors and just said, this is a weird one, but uh, yeah. <laughs> could you could you look into this? And they actually did. And they had an obit for George Nassar almost five years after he died, right. which is crazy. D just to dip back for a brief moment into the real Alita, your book. Um, sure. The, so actually, Lolita came out only. So she was abducted in 48 so, and she was gone for a year and a half. So she was back home. This is Sally Horner. Yes. Sally Horner, the real the real Alita. She was back home yes. sort of just before 1950. And you said there he first published in 1955. That's even very close to 
when that happened. Like, it's not as if it was written. I hadn't just kind of done the maths on that. It, it was still very close right. to when it happened, yeah? In, indeed. I mean, most likely Nabokov learned of Sally Horner because he read an obituary yeah. or a news story when she died at 15. And it was August of 1952. And it was right when he was sort of figuring out how to finish the manuscript of Lolita, which he had started and stopped. And at one point he had made noises about trying to burn it. And then his wife Vera stopped him. I think a lot of that was a little bit uh, performative, mm. but needless to say, he ha he struggled very much writing what became Lolita. And so I think Sally, learning of Sally's death may, may have unlocked some plot points mm. and some of the narrative scaffolding of how to tell the story. But there was also this element of, oh, she went on this cross-country road trip. Maybe that can help with the second act mm. of what's going on. I think he, it was already in mind, but that Sally's story sort of confirmed some things and added some things. So it wasn't like he was writing a book about Sally Horner. No, because Nabokov had been thinking about the relationship between an older man and mm -hmm. a young, young girl and how, you know, this is a pedophilic relationship. It's taboo. I mean, this dated back to stories he wrote at least two decades before Lolita was published. Yeah. It just preoccupied him for all sorts of conscious and unconscious reasons. But Lolita was sort of the fruition of these stories. And after that, he never really had to deal with it in the same way again. Mm. So, Sally's story was a catalyst, but catalysts are important to portray as their own individual stories and people, especially too. Mm -hmm. And in your book, The Real Alicia, obviously you went back and you actually spoke to the real, you, you spoke to Sally Horner's friends, a friend anyway, you got to speak to, to kind of, I suppose, remember her really as the victim that she was. Yeah, it was a very powerful conversation when I finally reached out to Carol before and she later died. Mm. So it was very, very lucky and grateful to speak with her when I did. She had not spoken really about Sally mm. in 65 years or so. What like. a tragic life. I mean, Tra my goodness me. Yeah. I mean, and, she, and, and uh, the thing was, yeah. even after all this time, she still remembered Sally so vividly. She started to cry mm. when she's on the phone with me. I mean, she really just, this was palpable. This was real. Mm. This was such, so important for her, this friendship. And it hardly lasted a year. And yet it was one of the most formative relationships of her life. Mm. So that was such a powerful thing to bear witness to, even on the phone. Well, to uncover really, you know, and to, to, yeah. to, to bring it to everybody um, who's read your book since the, um, you know, people talk about this uh, true crime being a kind of a bit of a fashion fad nearly at the moment. Um, like I've actually just come off my own stage show with mm -hmm. bringing, which is essentially a kind of a, been a very peculiar thing, a very peculiar journey for me as well. I'm a journalist and I'm not an entertainer. And yet I have followed this wind that has blown in, I suppose, really, and brought organized crime 
to the stage, which is an extremely difficult thing to do, actually, creatively, because you have to find the right balance between uh, realizing that people are there for a night out to be entertained, but also you want to deliver something that is informative, educational, and maybe makes them think about something that they haven't before in a way that's both audio visual and, you know, by your presence. So it's, it's been, it was challenging and, um, it is what it is, but, uh, it's come kind of on the wave. I suppose we're a little bit behind you here in the States with podcasts, the popularity of them. Um, you know, for me, I don't think crime is going away. I don't think it's a fad. I think personally that it's just finding new places and ways uh, for it to be told, for for the stories to be told. Um, and I think it's always been popular and it always will. And there's some explanations that go some way to explaining that. We like to sort of protect ourselves, to understand things as we can protect ourselves. I think we like a little bit of the titillation of violence as well and horror. horror and I think we probably enjoy feeling scared and then kind of coming out of that fear and realizing you're somewhere safe. You're in an armchair or something. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't think this is just going to all of a sudden be replaced with politics or with anything else. I think crime is just one of the most popular genres end of. No, I mean, it's, it's not going to be replaced with any other genre because to my mind, Crime and true crime encompasses every possible nonfiction genre. You look, you, it's like you throw a rock into the pond, and what comes back is something crime related. Mm-hmm. And it's always been like that. I've, I like to say that true crime is a phenomenon. It's a fad, but it's a fad that's lasted for centuries. In the states, you could go back to the Salem witch trials as like a big true crime phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, in in England. You could go back to all sorts of royalist insurrections and beheadings and the like. That counts as true crime. So my standpoint is, if we think of true crime as the most expansive genre possible and look at it through different lenses, we can learn a lot about ourselves. We can learn a lot about human behavior. We can learn a lot about communities and societies, the way that they should function, but more often than not, the way that they often don't. Mm. Yes. And it's it's um, it brings in. You're right. It brings in everything from economics to celebrity and sport and absolutely everything. But on that note, Sarah, and thank you very much for your time today. I think we will we will leave that there and admit that we both earn an honest living out of crime. Indeed, we do. (laughs) And it was a real pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from Sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Claude Amini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take the Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. 
Do not consume the Sunday world if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume the Sunday world responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.